Well, here goes. <laughs> we had quite the morning with sound, and uh, so what I'm going to do is just record this, and we'll just post the recording of it. We couldn't even actually get the sound to work well through the camera to record it, so I'm doing this on my iPhone. Hope you can hear me. Feels a little weird, even weirder doing it in here by myself, but um, oh well, here we go. Uh, I made the great joke this morning about it must have been something I said because nobody came to church this week. And even the six that were here when I first made that joke and the live recording are gone now. So it's just me. Um, but we've been working our way through the series of foundations. Um, problem with Kings. Uh, what, what we do, if, if you realize what we do with our lectionary, over the last four years... We have taken from creation up to the point of moving into exile. Every fall, we've taken a piece of that. This past fall, we've been working on the exile, the problem with kings. We've seen the good and the bad, the, the successes, the failures. One constant, though, has been throughout the monarchy is that they are in the promised land. They're in Israel. They're in the land. Well, that changes today because in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria. Now, you know, 60-some years later, is that no, 40-some 40, 40 years later, the southern kingdom is going to fall to Babylon. So it's, it's the beginning of the end. And we're going to pick up the text in 2 Kings 17, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 23. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became king, in Israel, in, king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who had preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to Tachoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year, year by year. Therefore Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an asherah pole. 
They bowed down to the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all of the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. And when he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. <clears throat> Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the ways of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. So what we see clear in the first six verses, and <laughs> we don't have the outline there, so if you're looking at the sermon outline, you're just going to have to listen really close. But in the first six verses of this text, it makes clear that it's the end of Israel. That's your first fill in the blank, little hint there. You know, we've been working our way through this monarchy for the last three months, and today it comes to an end. Judah, the south, is not far behind the northern kingdom. It's, it's been three months for us to work through these texts, but it's been 300 years for the people of Israel and Judah. And the last grasp at autonomy that we've, we've seen has everything that all the characteristics that we've seen building up until now. The struggle for power is one of the things we see. The struggle for power. Hosea becomes king. He's evil, but not as bad as the others. That's a real compliment, not. Um, he's been paying tribute to Assyria, to Shalmaneser, the king, the big world power, but he kind of decides he's done with that. So he sends a message to the king of Egypt, and he says, look, I'll pay tribute to you if you'll help me. But evidently, the king of Egypt never responds. And he stops paying to Assyria, and Assyria gets mad. They come, they capture Hosea, they put him in prison, and the king of Assyria sends the army to bring Israel to a harsh and painful end. A harsh and painful end. Samaria is the capital city, so Assyria comes, they lay siege to it for three years. Nothing in the gates, nothing out of the gates. People starve. It's a horrible end to the story of the northern king. Once it was all over, the people of Israel were all deported, taken away from their home, and Israel, as a northern kingdom, was no more. And, and there's a phrase in verse 7 that tells us why it happened. It says it took place because. There's a reason for, for this happening. There's a reason that the northern kingdom fell. There's a reason that the southern kingdom's going to fall. And we always want to know the reasons why God does something, don't we? We always say, why would God allow that? Well, this is one of those few times that it actually spells it out. It says very specifically in verse 7 that all this happened because the people of Israel were sinning against the Lord. Sinning against the Lord. Now, this has been happening for hundreds of years. This fall of the kingdom ultimately came because the people continued repeatedly over and over to sin against the Lord. And we know we've, we've said that phrase before. You've heard that phrase, sinning against the Lord. We kind of have a sense of what it means. We think we understand sin. But sometimes the assumptions that we make about these things can lead us down a dangerous path. So I want to look at the next section of verses to see if we can learn exactly what it means that they were sinning against the Lord. I want us to see that when we talk about the sins of Israel, there are specific visible issues. Worship and practice. These are visible issues. The worship 
of other gods, the practices of the other people. In verse 7, it says they worshiped other gods. Verse 8, they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. Their visible acts to be seen. Verse 10, they built high places. They put up Asherah poles and sacred stones there. Verse 11, they burned incense at these high places, right? They go up to the top of a mountain because it's higher, it's closer to the deity, they think. And they set up these places of pagan ritual. In verse 12, they worshiped the idols. In verse 13, it says, and they were warned repeatedly not to do this. Then it goes all the way back to when the kingdom divided. We saw that a few weeks ago. Uh, under Jeroboam in verse 16, it talks about when they made the calves, the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. They made the Asherah pole. They bowed down to the starry host and to Baal. Verse 17, it says they even sacrificed their own children in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery. All of this leading, and the, the quote in the, in the NIV is, they were selling themselves to do evil. There were very visible things that they were doing. The worship of other gods, the practices that they were doing were these visible acts that they were doing that were sins against God. But I also want you to look deeper because visible sins are usually really easy to spot, but they're almost always the result of something that's deeper. And for the people of Israel, sinning against God also included root issues, surrender and trust. See, it says in verse 14, they would not listen. They were as stiff-necked as their fathers. There's that, that stiff-necked, it's used nine times in the Old Testament when God talks about his people are stiff-necked. The Hebrew term, kasha oref, kasha oref. That's a great little Hebrew phrase for you to use on your children sometimes if you want to, if they're being <laughs> stubborn. The idea is of a stiff neck is, is that, the animal will not turn its head when it's being led. Now, I've invited a special guest, and that's why I was so sad that the big video didn't work. It's, but I've invited a special guest here today to help me demonstrate that. And let me just get him. Hang on. This is my special guest, Trigger, right? Uh, a, a horse. And you will see that Trigger has a piece of elastic stolen from my wife's sewing kit. Uh, made into a makeshift bridle. And what, what we all know how you kind of guide a horse. There's a bit in its mouth, and if I pull this side, it turns its neck that way, right? If I pull the other side, it turns its neck that way, and that's how you steer a horse. But the issue is, Israel is stiff-necked. So when God tries to guide them, they don't, they don't go anywhere. They keep their neck stiff. They fight against this guidance of God. That's the way the people were. Hang on, I just need to park trigger. I was going to toss him for dramatic effect, but I didn't want anybody to be offended by that. So he's parked safely away. No animals were harmed in the making of this sermon. But see, that's the image. Kasha oref. My people, I've been trying to guide them, and they're stiff-necked. They have refused the leadership of God. He's led them from Egypt into the land. He initiated a covenant with them. He's given them the law, not as a rule book necessarily, more as wisdom for the proper way to live. It was a way for him to lead them. But as he guided them, they stiffened their necks and they would not respond to his leadership. Verse 14 says the underlying idea there is they did not trust 
in God. And I'm, I'm going to come back to this in the end. But I want you to see the point of the law and the covenant of God was God saying to them, this is the best way to live. You don't understand the fabric of reality. You're so messed up in your thinking, you need guidance. And I understand that. And here's the guidelines. Here's, here's the law. Here's my covenant with you that is actually meant to protect you, not to control you. But they did not trust that God knew better than them. How many of you have had an experience where you, said you, where you would say you've learned something the hard way? <laughs> you've learned it from experience. And maybe somebody warned you ahead of that experience, but you just had to do it your way. That's being stiff-necked. I'm not going to respond to guidance. Refusing to trust that God knows what is best and surrender to his, his direction. See, this is the root issue underneath the visible sins. The visible acts were rooted in a refusal to trust and to surrender to one who was leading them. And this results, here's another subpoint. this results in the anger of God. It says at the end of verse 11, they did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. And in verse 18, so the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Now, here's a topic I want us to dig in on, the anger of God. How many of you have ever felt uncomfortable <laughs> with what we see to be the anger of God in the Old Testament and the life of Jesus of compassion and love in the New Testament? How many of you ever struggled with those two? How can that be the same God? I, I think most of us do. And, and uh, we're going to take a little time understanding God's anger. Understanding God's anger. There, there's a great Bible project video. It actually was a birthday present to me. It came out on my birthday. And I'm sure that they released it on that day as a gift to me because I love this. But the, the reasoning behind it is if you take a poll, especially in regards to the books of the Old Testament, many people would say that God, the God described there is an angry God. He always seems to be bringing judgment on someone or some group of people. But upon closer examination, I want us to see that our understanding of God's anger very often is very shallow and one-sided, one-dimensional. And this, this Bible Project video that we're gonna, I'm going to watch, it's five minutes long, but it really gives a good understanding. We'll watch it, and then I'll come back, and we'll talk a little bit about the points that it raises. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this third phrase, that God is slow to anger. Now, that might surprise some people. Isn't the God of the Bible mostly angry, striking people down for their sins? Well, it turns out that God's anger in the Bible is way more nuanced than that and way more interesting. In Hebrew, the phrase slow to anger is pronounced erek apayim, or literally long of nose. But what does God's patience have to do with a long nose? Well, first we need to look at the common biblical Hebrew way to say that someone is angry. Their nose burned hot. Like in the story of Joseph, when Potiphar thinks that Joseph tried to sleep with his wife, his nose burned hot. It's usually translated, his anger burned. It's describing how your body, especially your face, gets hot when you're filled with anger. And so in Hebrew, the main words for anger are either nose or heat, 
or hot nose. This is why a patient person is called long of nose. It takes a long time for their nose to get hot. Like in the biblical proverb, a person's wisdom is their long nose. That is, their slow anger. Now, in the Bible, God gets angry numerous times, but God doesn't have a nose or get hot. These are metaphors using our experience of hot anger to describe how God feels when he witnesses human evil. Just like you would get angry if you saw a child being bullied on the playground, so God gets angry when humans oppress each other and ruin his world. In the Bible, God's anger is an expression of his justice and his love for the world. But he's slow to anger, which means he gives people lots of time to change. Like in the story of the Exodus, when Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites and has their baby boys thrown into the waters, God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's given 10 chances to let Israel go free. But after the 10th refusal, Pharaoh rides out with his chariots to destroy the Israelites. And so God destroys him in the waters. Pharaoh's own evil is turned back upon him. And we read that this is an act of God's hot anger. Now, that's really intense, but think about it. God wouldn't be good if he didn't get angry at Pharaoh's evil and eventually do something about it. And notice that God's anger is expressed by handing Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own decisions. And this is actually how God's anger is shown throughout the scriptures, like in the story of the Israelites. Over and over again, for hundreds of years, they betray the God who rescued them from slavery. And though he gives them many chances to turn around, they keep giving their allegiance to the gods of other nations. And each time we read that the hot anger of God burned against the Israelites. But notice what always follows. God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. Israel wanted to serve the gods of other nations. And so God, in his just anger, gives them what they want as those nations circle back and defeat Israel. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says, God's anger is being revealed against human evil. And then three times he says what that looks like. God hands people over to their destructive desires and decisions, even if it leads to death. But Paul also says, God is patient, giving people time to come to their senses and change. Because remember, God's anger is a response to human evil. And it's based on a deeper character trait, his compassion and his loyal love. God is not content to let people sit in their own self-destruction. In the Bible, God's on a mission to rescue. This is why Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem to die as a demonstration of God's love for his enemies. He would stand in the place of his people who were choosing self-destruction and take the consequences of their decisions upon himself. In Jesus's life, death and resurrection, we see God's anger at evil and his love for people working together to provide forgiveness and life for a humanity lost in self-ruin. So God's anger in the Bible is really important, but it's not the end of the story. When God is angry and brings justice, it's because he's good. And he's extremely patient, working out his plan to restore people to his love. And that's what it means to say that God is slow to anger. Okay, so, so you watch the video. <laughs> it makes some very important points. I love the, 
the, the long, hot nose idea. I think that's just a great image to stick in your head to understand. But, but what I want to highlight from that, three key ideas. First, we have to see that what the Bible describes as the anger of God is related to his justice and his love. The video made the point that while we may cringe at some of the descriptions of God's anger, that we really don't want a God who doesn't punish evil. Remember back in Exodus 34, 6, at the start of the video, how God actually described himself um, to Moses. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. See, all of this is linked. Because he is a God of love and justice, there, there has to be some sort of anger, even if it's righteous anger, at evil and some punishment of the unjust. No one wants those who hurt and injure others to be able to do it with no consequences, with impunity. And by nature, a God of love and justice would have a righteous anger at those who hate and are unjust. And in anger, in this righteous anger, would rectify the situations. Now, that, that's a good point. The, the, the justice and love of God are related to his anger. Those can't be separated. But what I love about the video is how it emphasizes the way that God enacts justice is in, and here's another sub-point, allowing the consequences of decisions. And this ties in with this idea of refusing to surrender to the leadership of God and the law being for our good and for our protection. See, if we continue on the path of rebellion and resistance, if we keep our stiff neck stiff, we do so to our own demise and our own ruin. Example in, in the video was from Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. There's this idea that when God exercises his anger, what he's actually doing is letting the natural consequences of people's actions play out. In other words, instead of keeping them hemmed in by the law and controlling, he begins to say, okay, if you refuse to surrender, if your neck stays stiff and you will not follow my leadership, things happen. C.S. Lewis says there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. I think that's, that's, that describes this situation. See, the anger of God is often just the removal of his protection of the consequences from our own actions. God's law, often seen as rules, and control functions more like something that actually keeps us safe. I'm going to try to show a picture while I'm talking. I don't know if I can do that in the editing process. But it, 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 there's, a, there's a path along a cliff, very steep cliff. I'm hoping I can show that to you. Um, and, and there's a chain to hang on to. And I, I just imagine walking along this path, along the cliff, blindfolded. And, and holding to the chain and, and being mad at the chain. How dare you try to control me by making me hold this chain? That's the law of God. <laughs> it's not control. It's what keeps you from destroying yourself. It's something that's there to help you. See, if, if you don't surrender to the leadership of God, 
eventually the consequences of that decision are going to happen. And eventually God gives in to 300 years of Israel's stiff-necked behavior. But it took time. 300 years. That's the last point on the video. Yet God is slow to anger. His nose is long. It takes a long time for his nose to get hot. He's dealt with this northern kingdom for over 300 years. 20 different kings who all rejected God and the law. He's going to do the same thing in the southern kingdom for another 40, 50 years before they fall. You know, God is slow to anger. We see the apostle Peter, a guy who needed some time to mature for sure. He was aware of this. He says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God does show anger. It's rooted in his love and his justice. And he usually does that by removing the protections that the humans are chafing against. But he's patient. It takes time. But Israel, in our text today, had reached the end of the story. Judah was soon to follow. And so let's wrap up by learning from a fallen nation. Learning from a fallen nation. What can we take away from these weeks that we spent looking at the problem with kings? What can we learn from what is fallen Israel and soon to be fallen Judah? Well, there are several takeaways that merit reflection. I'm going to give you four. Feel free to just bite into one or two and chew on it for a while. But I think they're all relevant to our current situation. First, we need to be willing at times to rethink our assumptions about God. See, the problem with assumptions is that we don't even realize that we have them. <laughs> They're hidden very often in our lives. And this is especially challenging when it comes to our picture in our head of who God is. See, in verse 14, we see that the people would refuse to trust God. They would be stiff-necked like their fathers. They felt that his law was not the way to lead a better life, that they needed to lead their own lives. They had assumptions about the power that God should have in their lives. They had assumptions about what should be the best for them in this particular situation. And the same is true for us. We have these assumptions of how God's trying to control us or assumptions about his anger. And, and it shapes how we view God. These assumptions drive the way we look at God, the way we look at ourselves, the way we view the world. And some, some people I talk to, some of you even, have this underlying assumption that God is perpetually angry at you because of your failures. And you're ashamed of your failures and you feel like God's constantly mad at you. Now just think about that for a minute, okay? I'm not going to say that your sins are minimal and shouldn't be, we shouldn't grieve over our own sin. But if God was only angry at sin, the way you feel he is, why not just wipe us all out? Why tolerate us at all? And yet what God does in this situation when we sin, when we walk away from him, is he comes in flesh, the incarnation, takes our sin on himself to save us. You see, we have this feeling that God is angry at our sins, and that's the predominant image sometimes we have of God. And, and our assumptions about that can shape the way we approach him, can shape the way we view our own lives, can shape the way we feel about who he is. I have one friend, and you know who you are, 
And I tell him all the time, believe it or not, God might actually like you. Because he feels guilt. He feels weighed down by his sin and his brokenness. But and I'm not denying our brokenness. I'm just saying that if our, if our vision of God's reaction to our brokenness is only anger and disappointment, we are missing. We have a false assumption about God. And it needs to be rethought. Passages like this, when God gets angry, either fans the flame of our poor assumptions of God being angry, or it can help us challenge and rethink those assumptions. In John 17, 3, Jesus prays now, this is eternal life that they might know you. Know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The, the point is to know God, to rethink those assumptions. And most people think that's learning about God and that, that's involved. But often to learn something, you have to unlearn the assumptions incorrect assumptions that you had previously. Now, there's another assumption that we need to be challenged by. It's in regards to sin because I think we think of sins as bad things that we do. But this passage helps us to see something that N.T. Wright has made a theme in his own teaching. We have to learn, and here's another sub-point, just so you're, if you're keeping the outline, sin is idolatry more than specific action. You see, we see sins as these visible things. I lie, I'm prideful, I'm selfish, I lust. But these are just fruits of the true underlying problem. We think we need to just stop doing those things. I just need to stop that. But at a deeper level, at a root level, there's a deeper problem. Those things manifest in our lives because of idolatry of self. We have taken the throne of our own lives. We have stiffened our necks and refused to surrender to what God says is best, not trusting him. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of the story, right? Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5, the serpent says to Eve, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve takes the fruit Right? What is that? It's self-idolatry. It's, it's elevating yourself as the master of your fate, as the one who knows better, seeking to be equal with God. And this refusal to trust and surrender, this idolatry of the self, will always eventually destroy us. It enslaves us to sin. There's a quote by N.T. Wright. The problem is not just that humans have misbehaved and need punishing. The problem is that their idolatry coming to expression in sin has resulted in slavery for themselves and for the whole creation. I used to lead uh, backpacking groups, discovery groups, and, and part of the things we did with them was we would teach them how to read a map and compass, and then we, they had to lead. And we would not tell them where to go. We'd say, this is where we are right now. This is where we're camping tonight. Take us. And they often got lost. But but. Part of the group building experience was to try to help them realize they were lost and find their way back. But I also realized that when they made a wrong turn, there, there was a certain point after that decision that it hurt too much to go back. They had walked so far, they were scared to say we were wrong. And I see that in people's lives. The longer they refuse to surrender to God's leadership, the longer they, they worship at the idol of themselves the more that takes control and it's harder for them to back away. 
You know, as, as we walked down the wrong path with groups and we knew we were going down the wrong path, we would start to hint and we would ask questions, you know, like, oh, what's the name of that mountain over there? Hoping that they would realize that on the map there is no mountain over there if that, based on where they think they are. We would do it for the good of the group, right? In the same way, we have to see that when it comes to God's leadership with things like the law or the teachings of Jesus, that God's warnings are not control, but protection. God's warnings are not control, but protection. So many times we look at God's ideas about sin and what he says about the law and what you should do, the teachings of Jesus. We see it as if he's a control freak who just can't stand it when we do things he doesn't want us to do. He just wants to make us do what he wants to do. But when you begin to see that the root of all sin is worship of yourself, and that this type of self-idolatry will eventually destroy you because it's based in something you don't even understand, the true nature of reality. You, you begin to see that the law of God and the teachings of Jesus, the moral teachings of Jesus, are way less about control and way more about protection for us. There's a verse in Romans 6, 20 to 23. I'm sure you've heard this passage. Let me read it to you, but I want, I want to read it to you, and we're going to look at it from two different angles. When you were slaves to sin... You were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? These things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God in eternal life is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let me ask you this. If sin is about control, if God is just controlling us, telling us what we have to do, and you read the wages of sin is death, what that means is because you've made God mad, because you've not done what he wanted, he's going to pay you back with death. But if you read it from concern, the wages of sin is death, what that says is if you keep living in the ways of death, it's eventually going to get you. If you keep hardening your neck, stiffening your neck, refusing to respond to God's surrender, eventually it's going to destroy you. And the wages of that kind of life is death. But the gift of God, right? The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, ultimately our text provides a hint as to why all this is so important. Look at verse 15. It says, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. See, the danger in idolatry is that we grow into what we worship. The act of worship and honoring something as ultimate has implications. What we worship shapes us. And that's the threat of idolatry. You see, we were made in the image of God. We were called to reflect that image to all of creation, who he is, and our worship of him through Jesus, through the Spirit in us, will shape us into that image. That's our destiny. That's our calling. But if we worship lesser things, money, power, ego, it short-circuits the very reason we were created, and it leads us to death. Psalm 115, verses 3 to 8. Just listen to this. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, but their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet 
but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like him, will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Those who make idols will be like them. We become like what we worship. That's why we do worship here. That's why it's a rhythm that we come into where we come in. We remember that God is with us. We remember our own sin and brokenness. We're not denying it. But we also know that Jesus is enough to cover that. And so we confess that out loud. We open our heart to the word. We listen to the word and we respond. That's this rhythm of worship over time that shapes our lives into the image of God. It's, it's listening to the call of a loving God that's calling us away from self-idolatry toward a love and worship of Him. He's, he's pulling at our reins saying, go this way, this way, that straight. If you keep your neck stiff and you go straight ahead, you're going to destroy yourself. Come this way. And yet we fight for control. We grasp for it, even if we know it will destroy us. You see, our prayer should be for an ability to surrender to the Spirit in an honest and humble self-assessment. To turn from the idol of self and to surrender to the leadership of God, to enter his kingdom instead of presiding over the fall of our own kingdom. Let's pray. God, we, we far too often are stiff-necked. We're just like those people. Uh, and we... Although we don't build Asherah poles and go up to high places, we definitely often bow at the altar of our own desires, our own ego, our own plans, our own agenda. We're just thankful that, that you loved us enough to send Jesus, that you've given us the Spirit. God, help us to remember that. Help us to realize that, that what you have given to us is for our good. That surrender to your leadership is what, what brings us life. God, when we fight you for control, as gently as possible, force us to lose control there. Help us to surrender to you. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. God bless. Hopefully next week, we'll be live again. See you soon.